Kevra Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! This week, I had the great pleasure of talking with Justina Ireland. Justina Ireland is the author of Dread Nation, a New York Times bestseller in hardcover young adult fiction. That She's also the author of the middle grade novel Star Wars, Flight of the Falcon, Lando's Luck, the fantasy young adult novels Vengeance Bound and Promise of Shadows, and Scream Sight, a middle grade thriller. She's also the author of the upcoming sequel to Dread Nation, The Deathless Divide, or Deathless Divide. Justina, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me. This is a question. We always start off with the same question for everybody. <laughs> and that question <laughs> is, uh, why, YA, why do you write young adult literature? Or how did you happen to write young adult literature? It's always a complicated, that's always a complicated answer. Um, the short answer is, uh, when I first started writing, my writing voice was pretty naturally YA. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about voice um in in literature and voice is really just a combination of like syntax and word choice and perspective but when i started writing um my my voice was very much why in fact a lot of the rejections i got on my first manuscript was you know this reads a little young and those sorts of things and this was um this was back in the um the twilight days where everyone was talking very <laughs> much about twilight and my husband's like hey have you ever thought about this thing young adult and i was like young adult what's this and when I went and started looking, you know, researching, because the internet's magical, um, what I fit, found out is, like, there's this whole, like, area of books, and most of the stuff is stuff I had, you know, I, some stuff I knew and recognized and had read at one point and kind of fallen off of and fallen away from as I grew older. And so I was like, oh, I should read some of these books. And so that was right after um, Hunger Games was out and Catching Fire was getting ready to be published. And I read it, and I was like, this is amazing. I want to I be able to write like this. So fast forward now, like eight years, and um, I still write YA. I write other things as well. I write middle grade, and I have uh, adult books as well that just haven't published yet. But YA is still where my heart is, just because I I love the paciness of the story. I like being able to, you know, sit down and read for 20 minutes and get a good chunk of story done. Sometimes you're reading adult um, science fiction and fantasy, 20 minutes is like, we're still in the intro. We, we, even, we have not even left the, the castle. We haven't gotten to this inciting incident yet. And so um, I do like YA for that. I do also think YA is willing to um, try things a little more. I think there's a lot of, you see a lot more genre mashups in YA. I, I write mostly, write and read mostly speculative fiction. And so for me, I think there's a, YA is doing a lot of exciting things, especially when we talk about um, diversity and things like that too. So yeah, so like YA is just where my heart is and, you know, it, it keeps, I keep getting older and it stays the same age, like Matthew McConaughey says in a <laughs> basic confused, but in a non-creepy way, hopefully in a non-creepy way. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually something that we hear a lot from authors and also talk about a lot is that YA is like the place where you can do anything, yeah. the place where you can really just, just throw out your story idea and somebody will be like, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> on that note, can you talk a little bit about uh, writing speculative fiction and, and where that passion and joy comes from for you? Yeah. So um, speculative fiction is just kind of the 
big word. It sounds fancy. It's like the academic term for anything that's basically not real, right? So science fiction, fantasy, horror, they all kind of fall under this, this umbrella of speculative fiction. And then we get into our, our subgenres, which is where we see things like steampunk and cyberpunk and um, space operas. And then horror goes into its all kinds of splatterpunk and different things. Um, but I like speculative fiction because I like asking that what if question, right? So like all fiction asks sort of has like a theme, like a theme, like an emotional theme to it. But speculative fiction like lets you take that what if question and kind of take it to um, ridiculous places, right? So for mm -hmm. Dread Nation, uh, you know, you can take a question like what if the zombie apocalypse had started, you know, during the 19th century and kind of just like pull it apart and take it down. So like I really like, I like historical fiction, but a lot of times it's beholden to the truth of the time period. Whereas if you take historical fiction and you add a speculative element, all of a sudden now it's, it's not strange to see a woman who's in charge of a, a bureau of, of investigation or something, or a woman who was, you know, um, hopefully taking charge and leading things. And I think that's one of the things that's exciting about speculative fiction. Do all authors do that? No, of course not. Um, some people still fall into that same traps, you know, of, looking at society and and depicting it the way it is instead of the way we'd like to see it. But speculative fiction should ask that question and then give us a new version of society. Give us a, give us a new lens. And I like that, like pulling things apart and then reimagining it, sort of like a kaleidoscope. Like if, if you, like I, nobody has kaleidoscopes anymore because we all have, you know, we have the internet. <laughs> but in the olden days, right, you had this tube with magical beads and you turn it and the patterns would change. And speculative fiction is kind of like looking at the world that way, right? We look at a single element of our society or a single aspect of our lives and we take the kaleidoscope and we twist it slightly and try to give something new. Mm -hmm. And I like it and I think it's I think also speculative fiction makes it easier to have difficult conversations because nobody wants to talk about racism, right? We all end up feeling bad about racism. Like the people who like have experienced it feel bad. The people who are unwilling participating in a system feel bad. Like nobody wins in that conversation. But if you put it against a different backdrop, right? If you talk, if you put it in a fantastical world where, you know, like N.K. Jemisin's Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, where you can talk about, you know, what happens when, you know, someone decides to trap and 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 kill the gods and those sorts of questions, it's easier to pick those big questions apart and see where where our where our culpability is mm -hmm. and where we can be better um, without actually like feeling like crap. So I do like speculative fiction for that as well. I think it's really good at looking at big questions and trying to puzzle out an answer. Not necessarily, you know, an answer that works for everybody, but some sort of way forward. Yeah, absolutely. I've got to say, like, as a uh, as a reader, I never read a lot of speculative fiction and um, have obviously read more for the show because that's part <laughs> of my job now. Um, but when I read Dread Nation, I was like, oh, OK, I was just waiting for somebody to make historical fiction about zombies. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I needed. I know, yeah, I know. Like, so it's funny because, you know, people I have a lot of people who are like, I don't like zombies, but I liked your book or they're like, I hate history, but I liked your book. <laughs> And I'm like, that's the that's the what makes it great, right? Like you don't have to like a zombie book has to be a certain number of things. A historical fiction book has to be a certain number of things, right? Mm -hmm. There are these patterns and these expectations readers have, you know. And like sometimes we talk about tropes, but tropes are also helpful, right? Because it lets a reader know what they're getting. Yeah. Right? If you start, if you open up a book with a an opening scene and your opening shot is this majestic castle overlooking this ocean, there's a certain expectation of what kind of story a reader's getting with that. 
Um, so like tropes are sometimes helpful, but at the same time, you know, when we become too beholden to tropes, they feel tired and it's like we've read this book before. So that's what I do love about like YA, especially like mashing up genres, because you get a little bit of that readers know what they'd expect somewhat, right? And then it's, and then you can surprise and, uh, and delight a reader in a way that you not can't necessarily if you're so like jammed and logged up log jam excuse me into a certain um, genre and so I, I do like I do like that I do think um, why convinces people to try new things more often mm-hmm. I think a lot of us especially once we get into adult fiction like my husband my husband loves what I call his murder books and they're <laughs> these <laughs> and there's and they're always they're these thrillers and it's usually in the suburbs somewhere. And like somebody in the neighborhood's cheating on somebody else, and like you know, there's all kinds of people doing things they're not supposed to, and there's a murder, and you have to figure out who did it. And it's like I'm just like every time he reads them, I was like, how can they be entertaining? And it's like he's like, well, because I know what I'm getting, you know, I know what I'm getting. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want that. I want to be surprised, right? <laughs> I want, I want to find out that like, oh my god, it's not actually aliens, it's the future of Earth, right? Like that's the whole that's the planet of the apes, right? Yeah. We all think it's he's on a different planet, and it's like no, it's. It's a post-apocalyptic Earth. That's bananas, and that surprise. I do like. I do think. Um, I think it's hard to surprise people like that in a in in contemporary, um, because you know you can only take people so far out of the real world. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, one of the things that that came up a lot when we were talking about Dread Nation um, specifically is that the bad guy isn't kind of who you expect the bad guy to be in a zombie book or a zombie movie. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I'm assuming as somebody who hasn't consumed a whole lot of zombie lore, but but my co-host was saying it's just kind of you expect it to be the zombies or the virus, and it turns out it's kind of just the same bad guy as it always is. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, society! Society! Yeah. <laughs> Damn, you society, you got us again. Yeah, yeah no, I think a lot of people, they're, they're, they, people had conflicting opinions on that. I have had a few people who were like, I wish the zombies had been scarier and the actual bad guy, and I was like, yeah, but that's not this book, and I like I, I totally appreciate that. Like people pick up a zombie book and they have certain expectations, um, but I think a lot of people, even people who liked zombie books, were pleasantly surprised when they get get into the story and they're like, "Oh, this doesn't go like anywhere where I thought it was." Yeah, and I think as people are. That's. I mean, I try to do that. I mean, I think a lot. Every writer tries to do that, right? We want to. You want. You want a reader to be enjoy, have a good time along the, <laughs> throughout the story, right? You don't want a reader to get halfway through and say, this blows, and drop your book. Um, but then you also want to make sure you're, like, telling a story that's coherent. And then sometimes those two things conflict because, you know, it's really hard to set up that twist towards the end. You have to start from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing is so hard. Writing is hard. Oh, so. writing, yes. <laughs> yes, possibly hard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm, can you talk about any, are there any like authors, books, I don't know, TV series worlds that really informed or inspired you that like live in your brain and influence the way you write? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I I write Star Wars as well. So like, obviously I'm always thinking of, um, how Star Wars builds. I liked how Star Wars builds worlds, especially if you take out the Legends canon, um, which I know a lot of people are like, no, I love that. But Mm -hmm. I was... That was that was I didn't I was mostly a movie a movie fan until um until probably I'd say about the more recent books, um and then when the more recent books started to come out I was like okay I'll pick these up because I I 
I'm one of those people who I don't want to know. I want a good jumping off point to a story. I don't want to get into a, a fandom or a big world where I have to go back and reread like 300 books to get to like where we are today. Yeah. Um, I like to have, and I think the the well, the newer the newer materials are more encapsulated, so you don't have to know, you know, the other 20 books that came before. And so I appreciate that as a reader. But I do think the Star Wars world, I like the way the world continues to build and it continues to grow. Um, similarly, I also like Star Trek. I like the the messages there, right? Star Trek is like, there was I don't, um, there's this cartoon called Teen Titans Go and they yeah. basically do like space adventure, right? And then they're like, we're going to do a boring space adventure and their boring space adventure is Star Trek. And then they're like, okay, now we're going to do an exciting space adventure and this exciting space adventure is Star Wars. And it's a really funny episode, but it's really true. Like I really, I always liked that, that political drama of Star Trek. Um, the problem is, is like I'm not good at writing it because I get bored. <laughs> so I'm like, let's just blow something up and then it, it'll be fine. So I like end up turning to Star Wars anyway. Um, but then, like, I do think there are a lot of uh, newer words, like, worlds that I think have really stuck with me. And I really, I really like The Good Place, which is yeah. Uh, a sitcom. Yeah, um, because the way they build that world and the way they build the so I'm a big, I'm a big, I teach creative writing and. Mm-hmm. I'm a big, big proponent of what I call like the three-legged stool, mm-hmm. which is character, setting, and plot, and they all inform one another, and they're kind of inter- not like not interchangeable. Like, so if you change the setting slightly, you're going to also change your character slightly, and then you're going to also change your plot. Like, those three things have to kind of balance, right? And if they don't balance, and it's wobbly, then your reader's going to be upset. And so one of the things I do love about The Good Place is, like, even though they're building this world, this, like, this, you know, this fantastical idea of the afterlife, they're also building character at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, like, the plot informs character, character informs plot, and they both inform the setting. And it's just, it's just really kind of, like, a a great example. And, I mean, and the writing itself is very funny. And I think it's it's really smart, which is not something we get a lot from sitcoms, it, it seems, anymore. Um, and so, like, I really like it because it says they're saying a lot about the human condition and like mm-hmm. how we treat one another and the social contract, um, and, and and sometimes in a very obvious way, and then sometimes in a not so obvious way. So that's a show that I keep going back to right now. Like, if I'm if I'm stuck like in a plot point and I'm trying to figure out how to get characters from like A to B, um, because a lot of times when you're stuck in a plot for me at least, it's because there's something broken on the character arc that mm-hmm. has to go back and be fixed, and it's usually something to do with feelings or some sort of revelation that, that like you're not ready for me I'm not ready to write about so I tend to go back to that show because I, I do especially if you go back and you've watched all the current episodes and then you go back to the beginning you see how much work they're doing right. in such an effortless way and I I dream of writing in such an effortless manner it's like so good yeah you're making me want to go back to the beginning and rewatch. So- I- <laughs> yes, don't make- just yeah. go back I just showed my I have a creative uh, a fiction class and I'm for character I showed them the first episode and I was like, there's so much. They are doing so much in this, like, tw- it's only, like, 22 yeah. minutes or so. And they're doing so much for the building, this this world, the building the characters. I'm like, this is, it's just brilliant. It's just, yeah. I'm just so excited about it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fun to think about that because sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, oh, but if they hit a sticky point, they can just, like, reset. Mm-hmm. But, like, but there is, like, that much wider Oh man, I'm I'm a big fan. I could get into this. I could I could yeah, use yeah. up all no, our time that talking about the good place. Podcast yeah. <laughs> uh, I just watch. I just finished up what's on Netflix here, which I think yeah. is season I'm, three. Uh, yeah, season three. Yeah, so yeah. they're like one season ahead of what's on Netflix. So I haven't seen that yet. I think. Yeah, you really missed. There's only like three uh, episodes that have come out so far. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But man, 
Yeah. When when that season ended, I got so mad. I was like, how could you yeah. do this? To I was me? like, wait, it's done? Like, yeah. Yeah. This is personal. <laughs> this is the best of these episodes. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's really good. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think that's like, that's why I like, so I don't have like, I'm not like, a, I'm not huge into fandom. Like I know a lot of people are and like have friends who read fan fiction stuff. But for me, there's always a moment in which like the, the dream kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. So like, like there's a thing that you can poke a hole in and then it just kind of starts to unravel. So like for me, I mean like I've been watching Supernatural for the last 14 years yeah. and I'm like, I'm still watching it. I don't know why, but I am. Um, and so like, yeah, it's so, like I don't tend to have like a lot of, a lot of worlds where I'm just like, this is it. But, but that's one of them that I'm just like, there's, I have yet to find a thing that that's the flaw. There's, um, there's something about the vibe of the, the world in Dread Nation. I'm, I'm currently rereading. I'm like halfway through my reread right now. It's so um, many pages. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I also, I, I have a baby right now. I have a oh, one-year-old, yeah, yeah. so I just don't get as much time to read as I want. <laughs> um, but I'm, yeah. I'm halfway through it right now. And, um, it's funny because it's well it's not exactly a different time it makes me it reminds me of the firefly universe in a lot of ways which i guess i mean that makes sense with like the historical it's like not too far off time periods really yeah no i liked i liked actually you mentioned firefly i actually really did like firefly i kind of felt in a lot of way that the storytelling decisions that Joss Whedon made, I would not have made. Right. Right. Like, so I watched Firefly, like when it first came out, yeah. I watched all those episodes out of order. Um, and I only got through like the first two or three and then I got deployed. I got deployed to Kosovo. Okay. And while I was deployed, um, another officer, the movie came out and we went to the movie and the movie made no sense because I'd only seen like the first three episodes of the series. And then I saw the movie and I was like, well, I don't understand this timeline. And he's like, Oh, you didn't watch these episodes oh, I have them on DVD, let, let me give them to you. And so I watched them straight through on DVD, and at the time I was like, oh my God, it's great, it's amazing, it's a space western, why aren't there more space westerns? Like, where have these been in my life? And then now, like, as you know, as a writer, I'm like, I go back and I watch those episodes, and I was like, this works on these levels, but on this yeah. level, I feel like it falls a little flat. I think, I think part of it is the mystery for me surrounding River Mm-hmm. doesn't work as well anymore because it feels like an unnecessary mystery for like most of the series right, right. You could have, like, I mean like and it's, and it's clear like you know her, her her brother doesn't know what's happening but she's you know she's a verbal character and then also like in the in the most more recent light of Joss Whedon and his like yeah. different allegations like nothing has aged well right yeah and so, like, no and so like as a baby feminist it was like oh this is so great look at women have jobs and then like as like now I'm like wait a minute like where is all their agency? Like, 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 like nobody gets to make any damn decisions. And so, yeah, it's so, like I would, I would love to see like a new space western. I would like to see like a new show tackle that in a really smart way, um, because I do think westerns are inherently appealing because they remove a lot of those restrictions of society. And it's like, what do people do when there are no rules and society isn't able to like enforce those rules on folks? And so I think it would be. It would be interesting to see, especially if it was a a woman producer mm-hmm. or writer, and see what happens then. Yeah, I've got to say, I haven't watched Firefly in years, and I certainly haven't watched it since uh, the news surfaced about Joss Whedon, um, because I I have this like romantic 
memory of Firefly and I just like <laughs> I don't want to carry the knowledge I have now back yeah. <laughs> um, no I mean like nostalgia yeah. is like a valid yeah. like, there, there are lots of kids books that I love that I just will not reread because I'm like I know they will not hold up to adult Justina uh, yeah. so it's just, just let them sit they are that keeps coming up because I've been uh, I've been um, my daughter is six and I have been reading books and <laughs> discovering that just firsthand and being like, oh, going to skip this page. Oh, going to skip this page. <laughs> yeah, my, I, I have an 11 year old. And yeah. at some point we just decided we're like, we're just going to read new books. No, yeah. no, more, no, no, more, no more classics, quote classics, because, uh, yeah, they're all a little, a little, little upsetting. You got to write new classics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So we've got this sequel coming out. Yes. Uh, Deathless Divide is the title. Yes. Am I right on that? What can you tell us about that? I can tell you it picks up exactly after the last book leaves off. So um, there is no time jump at the beginning um, between Dread Nation and Deathless Divide. So, you know, we kind of leave um, Jane and Catherine on the prairie, standing outside of <laughs> Summerland um, at the end of Dread Nation. And then we pick up the book and they're exactly in the same spot. And we kind of go from there. Um, and after the and in, um, this time the book takes place, there's um, alternating points of view. So you get Catherine and Jane. Ooh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That was hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they're two very different people. And so how do you convey that to a reader? Um, and one of the ways we do that is like, you know, you, you just put the name at the top of each chapter so you know who you're reading. But like the I'm trying to make the voices different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Catherine, I mean, Catherine's such a different character from Jane. Like Jane is like, I know what the rules are, but I'm going to still do my own thing because it's the right thing to do. And Catherine's like, well, no, there must be a way, there must be a way to find an answer within the rules, right? Like, like the rules are this, but you know, where can we find the loophole in the rules or how can we use the rules to help us? And so mm-hmm. she's much calmer. Um, and she, she has a lot of like, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, right? Like, you know, yeah. still waters run deep. And so I, I was really a good, it was really fun because then also like when you're in a different point of, um, point of view, you can kind of show readers what other people think of the characters so you know dread nation was all in jane's point of view she's narrating the whole thing and you know and she's a liar right she tells you and so like <laughs> you have to kind of take what she says with a grain of salt so then when you get when you get to deathless divide you can say like you can kind of see like what she telling the truth about what she lying to herself and to us about and so mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun to write I, I i actually enjoyed writing both points of view once i could figure out you know how to try to make them so- sound somewhat different Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the journeys as a reader reading Dread Nation is definitely the the um, developing your own opinion of Catherine outside of Jane's opinion of Catherine, and yeah. some of that develops with Jane's opinion as she gets to know Catherine, and some of it just develops, you know, independently as readers do. And I just ah, oh, that's that's such an exciting move. I'm really really excited to get that. Yeah, um, I, I I just went through first pass pages, so it's like actually like finish finish now and um rereading through it I was because like so it's like reading is so funny I mean reading excuse me writing is so funny because you write and you work in something so for such a long time and then it kind of goes away for a while mm. and then it comes back and when you come when it comes back you don't always remember sitting in writing those scenes right you, you remember some of the stuff but like it's 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 almost like it becomes a thing outside of yourself and it's, which is always funny. People are like, I love that part in your book where this happens. And I was like, I don't remember where that is, <laughs> but I want to take your word for it because I can't remember. You know, it's been like I'm four books past th- that thing I wrote. Um, but it was nice, like, going back to it and, re- and realizing, what, like, okay, cool. It, 
like you do get a lot of like you get a lot more of the characters and not just mm-hmm. you know not just um Jane and Catherine uh Daniel Redfern comes back we get um Miss Duncan we uh-huh. get you know the ladies of Summerland so we get a lot of other characters as well um Jackson and, and Lily and so you get to see these other characters as well from two different perspectives instead of just Jane's very emotionally charged perspective so it was it was cool it was cool to be able to, to write at that different yeah. front different Oh, and they're such wonderful characters. I mean, I really just love all of them so much. The first time I read it, I read it on audiobook uh, because baby. And now I'm yeah, reading, yeah. It, reading it on paper and just uh, it's so fun. It's so fun to read it again. And now I'm getting very, very excited and I'm losing track of all the things I wanted to ask you in my <laughs> excitement. <laughs> I'm so excited uh, to see Jackson again. Yes. Uh, so excited to get more of him. He's one of my personal favorites. <laughs> the 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 fact that you're doing it in both voices is very 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 exciting to me, and I wasn't expecting it. And I'm just like, oh my god! I mean, to to, to add to add to the excitement, Bonnie Turpin's uh, coming back to narrate the second book as well, and then there's going to be another narrator for Catherine. And so it's like I'm pretty excited for that because I don't think I've I've never had a uh, audiobook that was narrated by two people. So I'm like, oh, it's going to be yeah. like almost like a real thing like <laughs> uh, and what a good performance it was too I um when so I good. got to the the pastor I was kind of glad that I had listened to the audiobook first because I had that she does just this slippery mouthy voice for him that like you can hear his dentures shifting around and now I have that voice in my head and it's it's so wonderful it adds That's such cool. a wonderful dynamic to it I do want to talk to you also about writing Star Wars but now I like started talking about the sequel and now I want to keep talking about <laughs> that universe and I'm like I'm like at this crossroads in my brain but so I mean I guess like you're picking up right where you left off it's the same place which i that's very cool. I'm excited about that. Um, so when you wrote Dread Nation, uh, you, were, you were planning Deathless Divide, yeah? No, or not at all. Were you? Not at all. Okay. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is really funny because people are like, she totally left over for a sequel. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh, I like open endings. Like, I I love Poe. Like, I love Poe's endings. Mm. And, like, I know a lot of people have very strong feelings about how Poe ends his short stories. But I like that, like, what happens next? It's up to you, reader. Figure it out. Right. Um, and so, and so, when I wrote, uh, when I wrote Dread Nation, the first, the first ending I had on on Dread Nation was, was a much longer ending. And then my, my, nothing survives like you know, first contact with an editor. And when my editor got it, he was like, okay, we need to fix all these other things. And then that makes the ending not fit, right? Like once you start going back to the beginning and fixing plot threads, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden that that ending doesn't fit that world anymore. And so, you know, I had all these different endings and finally I was just like, no, we're just gonna, like, what's next? Like, let's just like figure out what's going to happen next. And so like, I just wanted to leave them with this possibility of like, you know, like still being friends and still Mm -hmm. going out to the world and like still this unanswered question of where people are. Because I think there are, there are always, there are always people in our lives that we lose track of and we just never, never figure out. And now the internet, like, you know, usually lets you know, like, oh, they became a doctor and they live in Cleveland now. Um, But before the internet, (laughs) there was always people who we like just kind of lost touch with and just like oh I wonder where they are today or maybe if you went to college or excuse me a high school reunion you saw them there but other than that you just never knew and so I liked that idea of just like you know like there are different people and then maybe things things are different but then they're also kind of the same and so um after Donation did pretty well um my editor was like so you're gonna write a sequel right and I was like well no and he's like well you kind of set it up for a sequel and I was like did I though (laughs) 
like, you did. And I was like, oh, I did. Um, so it was like really, it was, I, I struggled to be honest um, okay. for a really long time trying to figure out where to take them next because you don't want to tell the same story. Mm. And, but you, at the same time, you want to tell a story that readers are going to want to read, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like people, people are coming back because they, they like Jane. Um, if you hated Jane, don't, don't come back to the sequel because <laughs> you're not going to find anything you like. It's going to just be more awful. Um, and like, so like it was, it was hard to figure out like, you know, how can I give readers Jane, but then also something more, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons we ended up with a uh, tool point of view, or I ended up with a tool point of view because I don't know, I like a challenge. I also like structural, structural challenges. Mm-hmm. So the structures, um, echoes the last book, but it's slightly different as well. And so like, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I wanted to give the reader something more. So like and then, like you know, and I already talked about. Obviously, you know, we'd also already talked about a lot of big issues in the first book, mm. and touched on them. And it's like, okay, so how do I bring those into a new light and add that something new to that conversation without rehashing the same plot points as last time? So yeah, um, sequels are incredibly difficult. Like writing is hard, and sequels are like plus ten on that. Right there, it's mm. like it's <laughs> it was I was uh, it was hard. It's so hard. Um, but it was finally done, and now I never have to do it again. Okay. <laughs> so this is it. I'm never, ever writing another sequel. I say that now. And then in, in five years, we talk, and I'm like, so the sequel's coming out. I'm like, yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I like. I don't know how people do trilogies. I don't think I could have I, – I don't think I could carry through plot threads through three books. Right. Well, I'm I mean, like, having read a lot of those trilogies, sometimes those plot threads don't not, get carried through yeah. the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think one of the kind of like unfortunate things that happened in YA after all the Twilight buzz was the incredible pressure to make a trilogy. And I think a lot of really good writers kind of got a a short stick getting pushed to make something a trilogy that shouldn't have been. I have had like uh, this has been my drum that I've beat for a very long time. Now, to be fair, like Dread Nation is basically two plots arcs right there's like the, the first half and second half are basically two different yeah. stories um <laughs> i just don't do any like introduction for the second one um but this has been my thing for a long time is like a lot of times it seems like for a trilogy that second book could be a little bit extra on the first and a little bit extra on the third yeah and then you would get the whole story so yeah i do feel like there are a lot of a lot of i think it's it's i think it's calming it seems like it's calming down now in ya mm-hmm. um it seems like we're getting more duologies which is perfectly good um but yeah like i i am I am not I don't have the attention span for like five books in a series right there's there's only one series where I've read like all the books and there's like 10 books and that's the Kate Daniels series by Alana Andrews and that's literally the only series where I was like okay well this is book a I guess I'll read this one and the last one was still good mm-hmm. um but even the most recent one was kind of like you could you could you could feel the author getting tired and I think right. that's the, that's usually what shows in books that have a long series is like you can feel that the author is also tired of writing these books <laughs> so they're like they're like I have bills but also how much more can I say with these characters so mm-hmm. yeah so I do think I long series I was I'm always impressed with people who are like I've read every single book in this series and there's like 23 and I was like god good good on you because I just I forget they exist and then like <laughs> and then I'm like intimidated because there's like 10 books I miss and I don't want to go back and yeah yeah, I think probably the last, I mean, apart from Harry Potter, the last really extended series I read all of was Redwall in grade five. Yeah. Not really, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a long one. I never, I never read uh, Redwall because I don't like anthropomorphic animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was a kid who was like, the only one I ever 
Stuart Little. Stuart Little is like the only anthropomorphic animal I ever liked. Like I did not like Charlotte's Web. I know it's like every kid loves like animals that talk, and I'm like, why are these animals talking? Um, but if you put them in a fantasy book, it's fine. It's well, just fine. Stuart Stuart Little is canonically human, right? He's canonically a human who looks like a mouse, which creeps me out a lot more. Is that is that yeah. really, is that what it's supposed to be? The is way that... the book is set up, I don't know about the movie, but the way the book is set up is when Mr. and Mrs. Little had their second son, they were oh, very surprised that he was the size of a mouse and looked no. like a mouse. But like the idea is that she actually gave birth to this child. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think in the movie she had they adopt him. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that no, maybe I, works like, a little better. This is the great thing about like kids, right? Re- kids read past this stuff because somebody was talking about someone was talking about some other book, and they're like, "Yeah, that book has this." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Like, "No, this is in there." I was like, "I read that book like three times as a kid. I do not remember <laughs> it was in there." Yeah, yeah, it was like I always forget about the wife locked in the attic in Jane Eyre. Like I, I for some reason that my brain just like erases that. They're like, because that makes Rochester not. Hot. So let's just take that out of his characterization, right? Like, like, oh yeah, the fire starts and everybody has to get out. And there was a lady who was killed. Like, yeah, it's that's strange. But yeah, no, I do, I do remember this now. That you're talking about this. Just yeah, do you remember? It's yeah, weird. It's weird. <laughs> um, I remembered what I was going to ask you earlier, and oh, then, and then and then just panicked and forgot. Um, <laughs> I was really struck by the diversity of the world in Dread Nation. Especially, I mean, noticing that there's like a spectrum visibility and bisexual visibility and sort of it felt like a really honest depiction of how people actually work, uh, which was really refreshing. And I just wanted to like talk a little bit about representation and and especially because I think you include it really organically. Yeah. um, Yeah. So I think I think this idea that like people especially queer people did not exist is such mm-hmm. a strange one right like like the idea that somehow humanity has like changed in the last like 5000 years it to me is like really i mean like if you i mean here and this is i guess this is the problem with being a history major is mm-hmm. like you know like my undergrad i have a, a mfa but my undergrad and my first master's degree i didn't finish the thesis i wrote a book instead but my first master's degree they both were in history so you spend a lot of time basically reading all about the ways in which people can be terrible to each other. And so after like a a while of reading that, you have to assume that like, well, we have the same ways of being awful to each other. So we had to have had the same ways of loving one another. Like you Mm -hmm. can't have one without the other, um, in my world at least. Um, (laughs) I don't want us to live in a world where you can have one without the other. And so it always seems strange to me that, that you wouldn't have queer content. And if you did have queer content, it was somehow used as like a, a way to signal why a character was being punished. Mm. Like if you read a lot of like the um, writing, especially from like the 60s, 70s and 80s, if there's a queer character, you know, they're going to die horribly. Right. Um, but then part of the reason I find that so distressing is our fiction shapes our perception of the world and how we perceive the world is how we treated, you know, we treat one another in the real world. So mm-hmm. If we make, like, identities just not a big deal, it's just, like, people are different and that's okay, like, I feel like we can finally get to that idea where people, you know, saying I'm colorblind isn't, like, some sort of asshole thing to say. It's just, like, <laughs> it's, like, literally, like, oh, yeah, well, that's cool. He's black. It doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's, like, like, it's one of the things you have to include. I also, like, it also seems like whenever we have the conversation of queerness, 
you know, it's it's we have a lot of characters who are white, mm-hmm. and being queer as a person of color is very different than being queer as a white person because you know it's another level of oppression you have yeah. to kind of deal with, and so like I mean, and, and like you can you read a lot of historians about queerness in the United States, and honestly, you know, Bar. Um, Baron von uh, Steuben, I think it was his name was the guy who in, invented the Blue Book, which was the marching guide by which you know the militia, the Minutemen in the Revolutionary War in America trained, was queer, right? Mm. He was gay and he had to leave Germany because of it. So what you see is you see there's a lot of queer people throughout history. It's just we just strip that away from them. You know, the same time, the same way we kind of strip away the fact that George Washington owned slaves and was a slave owner, right? Mm. Like that sucks, and we just kind of strip it off and put it to the side because it doesn't fit that narrative. And so I wanted to have characters who, who, who are those identities, but they don't have the language for those identities, right? Those, that language is very new. Like a lot of the language we have for, for queerness didn't exist when, like, you know, when I was like a little baby queer in the 90s. And so like I think it's important to have that there and also to kind of show that there's no right way to be queer. Like I think there's a lot of like policing of identity that's starting to happen because of social media. And I understand part of it's a, pro- a protective reflex because – um, because people are so awful and societies you know, continue to be so awful. But at the same time, when we start to police people and put them in boxes, we're no better than the, the, the people who want to put us in other kinds of boxes. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like it's important to show, show characters who are like, yes, and then I also sometimes do this, but then I have this other stuff that's happening as well because um, I want us to be past the, the coming out stories. I don't think we are, to be honest. Like I, I, would, know, I would never say, like, don't write that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we need. I want. I want more, right? I want. I want everything. I want it all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but and I, want, I want stories about being queer. I want stories where characters happen to be queer. I want stories about being black. I want stories where characters happen to be black. And I want it all. And I want it for readers to be able to appreciate and and support however they will. Yeah. Well, and that's what representation means. Like. I hope so. Representation <laughs> in YA lit isn't, we have one book about a queer person, so look, we have this diverse genre. Like, representation yeah. is when you actually get to have as many stories about as many different ways of being queer as you do stories about different ways of being straight. Because, like, wow, there are a lot of YA books about different ways of being straight. Like, so many. Right. So I many. <laughs> I read all of them as a baby queer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, right. there were three about being queer. <laughs> and I, I read those over and over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think yeah. I think it's, like, like especially, like, if you, you know, if you grew up in, like, the 90s or, the, like, the early 2000s, like, it was, like, I remember when the L word came on Showtime, and I was, like what I was like that that's a that's a that's a thing people can do like you can be out like that you can live a life and like have it just be like no big deal um and I I think it's yeah like I think it's I think it's great to show that I think it's that's why I'm like I think it's good to show like coming out stories as well because I do think there are like people who live in places where it's Mm -hmm. it's not safe to be queer it's not safe to be gay um like every time I go to New York City I'm just like absolutely amazed that like how everyone is like so comfortable at at being who they are like Mm -hmm. like you know you don't like you don't see a lot of um like queer public affection like necessarily and like where I live in I live out near Baltimore like Mm -hmm. in Baltimore and like these areas because we're a little more southern right but you go to like New York City and it's like not a big deal and that's like that's pretty awesome like I think we should all aspire to be that way where you just 
you just mind your own fucking business and it's okay. <laughs> and I think that's like really like where it is. It's like if you don't like that stuff, read past in the text and get back to the zombies. Like it'll be fine. <laughs> you don't have to like, you know, I, I read there's stuff, man, there's stuff I read in books. I'm like, I don't know, this, this is not for me. I just kind of flip past and get back to the stuff I was looking for. Yeah. And it's fine. You can skip a few pages and still get a story. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's ex- it's an exciting time in YA, I think, in terms of diversity and representation. We just did a, a month in August on um, LGBTQ content, and uh, we did, like, there there happened to be five weeks in August, like, there were five Mondays in August, so we got to do mm-hmm. all LGBTQ. Um, and it was really cool to be like, oh, we have to, like we have so many recommendations for this one that we have to really narrow it down and we like actually have to choose the best one like for this instead of just being like well there's one about this and I remember being a teenager in the early 2000s and you know going to the library and the books I read about queer people were always they were always miserable it was always like, like if you are queer you are depressed and so unhappy and like deeply closeted and like, I mean, I guess that is, it's a form of coming out narrative. Um, and it is still important. We read um, The Life and Lies of Rick, The Love and Lies of Rixana Ali, which is a coming out story about how it is still unsafe for a lot of teenagers to come out. Yeah. But it really is, it's just, it's such a different uh, literary world than it was when I was a teenager. Um, and I'm constantly just really excited that like my kids are going to grow up and whatever their experience is, you know, it's, it's a pretty good chance there will be a book about it. They're white, so they have like less specifications, right? But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no, I think, I think it's like, like, like I said, my, I have an 11 year old and like her language for like the language she has to use for identity is also kind of more sophisticated than what I had at 11. Mm-hmm. Like she, um, she's heavy into like art communities and stuff like that. And she, you know, we were really open about talking about sexuality and, and gender identity and that sort of stuff when she was younger. And so now it's like she's less hung up on that stuff and she's less like fixated on people who are different. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, it, like she's she's comes by it honestly enough. Like my husband's white and I'm black, so she was already kind of in a in a <laughs> in a world where she was, um, you know, picking through through kind of different identities, but. Right. I I do think it's it is nice because the more more we have for kids, the more they have they have a chance to read that kind of stuff, the less scary it is, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, like I think like b- books build empathy. Um the problem is making sure you kids start reading young enough and they're open enough to to materials that they don't get to like adulthood and then try to build it from then because then it's really hard to build empathy when you're you're already yeah. fully formed. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to like I I could ask you I'm I'm personally curious about the like Star Wars writing because I see so many authors who are cool who are writing Star Wars books now but I've also kept you for a while <laughs> 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 I'll have to, I'll have to so, come back when I have a yeah. YA Star Wars and we'll talk about Star Wars yeah 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 um thank you so much we're really Thanks excited really excited for Deathless Divide um really loved Dread Nation uh, you also were the fastest responding author I've ever emailed. I, like I emailed you, and I was like, "Yeah," and we'll just see when she gets back to us. And then was like, "Whoa, there's a there's an answer." <laughs> um, 
So I like, to, I like to, yeah. uh, when my my assistant was away that week, and so when, when they're gone, I like to clear my email quickly because otherwise, yeah. <laughs> I always feel bad. I don't, I don't want them to come back to like an inbox full of, like two hundred emails. I'm like, sorry. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was so really nice me. to have you. I guess have a good evening. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. See you on the internet. See ya. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyahpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hear more about Justina Ireland, you can visit her website at justinaireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Yeah Podcast, and individually I'm at Tepper Bear. Caddy is at Caddy double underscore D, and Hannah is at The Balesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yeahpodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons Catherine Resch, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefer Ajemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. We need to record a new ad for Up for Discussion. What should we tell people? Tell them we're an emotionally honest comedy podcast. Great! What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and try to become better people along the way. And we make poop jokes. So many poop jokes! With tons of awesome guests like Hank Green, Carrie Poppy, and Cecil Baldwin. Yeah, and poop jokes! The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever fine podcasts are sold. Hi there. I'm Nick Hughes. And I'm James Hughes. And we're political. We host Canada's Young Leaders, a show on the Upford Network. For a second season, we are looking at this year's federal election and talking to young candidates from each of the major political parties about their views for Canada's future. So for insight into the debates being held at the highest level of our country, tune in to Canada's Young Leaders every Monday on the Upford Network.